0: Today, we're taking a look back to our podcast infancy. Yes, we're going back to how to save the comic book industry. Is our advice still apropos, or do we need to update our hot takes? The byword starts now. Welcome to episode 168 of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that is willing to admit when we're wrong. Just kidding. No, in all
1: seriousness,
0: (laughs) in all seriousness, today we are going to take a look back to one of our very first episodes, episode two, How to Save the Comics, which was recorded and released, was released on June 8th, 2020. So it'd be interesting to kind of revisit this topic on how to save the comic books um, revisiting these takes, and are they still relevant, or do we need to adjust for a, a three-year difference? Um, but first, as always, it is time for Black News. All right, Dave, hit me with it. <laughs>
1: AI, my friend, AI, back in the news. Uh, this one from a, a different website than I would usually uh, peruse, but I came across this in my extensive reading on AI and how it's influencing the comic book industry. This is not directly comic book industry, but comic book adjacent, and I thought it was very interesting to talk about. So this is from a website called Creative Block, a block here spelled with a Q, uh, which deals with graphic design, web design, and so on and so forth. Um And here, a uh, gentleman by the name of Paul Hatton uh, reported on a little uh, kerfuffle that was posted on uh, Twix, uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter, right? Um, So here is the story. Uh, Apparently, there is a um, concept artist uh, who goes by the uh, moniker of Do Fresh on uh, Twix, and uh he has been uh is a pretty experienced freelance concept artist and illustrator, apparently. And he received a call, according to his um various Twitter posts. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. I'm trying, man. Uh and uh he received a call from an advertising company who needed his services. Uh he had worked with them previously. Uh, but they hadn't worked together for a while. And it was going quite well, apparently, uh, until the company representative said that they only reached out because their in-house AI technician was too busy, and they were therefore forced to find an artist. And so this is where uh, uh, du- uh, Fresh kind of uh, saw red. Uh, he is a very... Or uh, they, let's say they, because I'm not sure if it's he or she. Let's go with they, or maybe it is they. I really don't know. Um, they are a uh, proponent of no NFTs and no AI. And so Dufresh was uh, the wrong person to contact and talking about using an in house AI technician. Um, and so he, she, they uh, posted uh, Are we artisan illustrators bleeped? Uh, Received a call this morning from an advertising company. We used to work together a lot during the last few years, but uh, rare, rather rarely lately. And then goes into, hey, you know, uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do now, uh, considering that people are having in-house AI technicians to actually create their art now instead of hiring actual live artists. Um, do fresh. Uh, Posts, I am afraid that even with laws protecting artists, the damage is already done. Within a few years, art will probably be a hobby for wealthy people and definitely won't be able to make a living. Um, And this is obviously really concerning. Especially considering how deeply uh, you know our podcast is involved in the comic book industry, we can see how this is going to uh, potentially affect the creation of comic books. As companies, you know, especially at stuff like the Big Two, DC Marvel, which are ultimately corporate owned, might shift towards trying to use AI models to take shortcuts with their art and hire less artists, thereby cutting out the overhead and uh, making more profit. Um, I find this obviously uh, extremely troubling. I've, I've spoken about this before, and so have you, Chris, how we are not proponents of using AI to replace human creativity and human labor. Um, but we've, we've also kind of been at the point where we've been talking about this in very theoretical um, you know, uh, situations because the general sense, I think, has been that AI is not quite there yet to actually fully replace, um, you know, human creativity. Uh, but it appears that there are companies already, you know, at this point, even with the um, technology being sort of in its infancy, already moving away from live artists uh, to, you know, these AI creations. And and so the future is now, um, and it's extremely troubling, Chris.
0: One of, one of the things that is just truly upsetting about it is how quickly society as a whole just wants to take the quickest path. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people see AI, uh, AI generators as one of those quick paths to like getting the desired result and, and not having to wait for an artist to complete something, not waiting for a commission or, or paid work from a freelance artist. So like, I think that's the most disheartening thing. And that's not exclusive to comic books. That's not exclusive to any of the nerd-centric things that we cover on our show. Like, you know, I, I talked about this before. Like I, I struggle with my kids using online translators to complete their work. We struggle with um, kids being tempted by things like ChatGPT. And I think like, this is probably the most unsettling thing is like you say, AI is not there yet as a whole whole cloth rep, uh, you know, replacement for individual artists. But if we just keep feeding these search engines with stuff, we're, we're kind of expediting that process. You know what I mean? Um, I would like to think that um, the emboldening of individual creators like what we saw with the wga what we're continuing to see with sag aftra during these strikes i would like to think that that would hold some power there to kind of prevent this but i'm like it's almost feel like i'm grasping at straws here because of just the overwhelming sense of urgency in the world it would seem the the Worldwide populace just wants things fast. They want it now. They don't want to wait. If a web page takes more than 30 seconds to load, there must be something deeply wrong with the computer or the internet, or like it, it's just an unsettling thing. So here's hoping that creators' rights and striking and refusing to work with companies that participate in this will mean something. But, um, I don't have high hopes and I, I'm sorry if that comes across as pessimistic
1: and I do believe we're at the point now where legally I think it is time for for governments to step in here I think absolutely you know the 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 so the AI models themselves there's nothing wrong with them right I mean the problem ultimately is what they feed them to teach them right and what they're doing is they're feeding them uh, they're feeding these AI models essentially copyrighted works right? And then so when these AI models generate something, it is very clear, and you can see time and time again, which artists are, uh, you know, specifically being, you know, generated. Uh, I've seen people, um, particularly on social media, specifically say, well, I I fed this AI model, I want it to look like blank artist. Um, And it's not that the AI is creating something original, they are literally regurgitating stuff that, They've been fed, right? This is this is how AI learns by just looking at all quote unquote looking at all these different artists' actual work, and I think there needs to be some kind of law that says that you cannot train AI models on copyrighted works unless the artist is being has given permission, whether that yeah, is comp- through compensation or, compensation, or, or whatever, yeah. right? Um, because I, because I, I,
0: they're so quick, they're so quick to strike something down. Like if you share a clip on social media, or or like pirating streams, or torrenting, or anything like that, they're so quick to strike down things like that. Why is this any different?
1: Uh, because ultimately you you're dealing with the individual worker and individual creativity, and not corporate owned IP. Uh, when you have a massive corporation going after something, it gets done. But when you have, an, you know, individual artists trying to protect their livelihood, apparently that is not as big of a priority because there's not as much, you know, raw cash involved. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, but the, you know, this is ultimately an issue of intellectual property. It's not so much about the technology. And I've said here before there are. There are workflow things that you can do with AI that even I find very interesting. But these are things that are not based on on copyrighted works necessarily. You know, fee, feed it a piece of text to level it for, for you know, students of, of various, you know, reading abilities, for example. That, that sort of stuff is extremely useful. So I, I am not... You know, anytime somebody says anything against AI and social media, the AI bros come out and you know start flo- you know throwing around boomer and stuff like that. Um, and I'm I'm not such an old foggy that I don't appreciate technology and what it can do, you know, uh, for humanity. But the difference is I want it to do for humanity, not replace humanity, right? Um, and so ultimately, I just think it's really, really time that that we deal with the intellectual property component of this imagine, and, and I think we're going to have to get to this point where we have like an AI model that can make like cartoons, right? And then you just feed it all the Disney cartoons and suddenly it spits out Disney cartoons for you, you know? And then Disney is going to be like, now, wait a minute, now I don't want it, you know? And then, and then we'll, we might get something done. But it's very troubling how long it's taking, um, you know, lawmakers to catch up with this technology and do something to protect individual artists who are clearly being ripped off by this technology. They're quick to step into anything, as long as they think they can, you know, get some kind of advantage out of it. Is the problem. All right, let's talk uh, CD Projekt Red. A
0: uh, really good developer. I'm I'm interested to hear what you got to say here, Chris. What's new? Well, CD Projekt Red, who you and I both have an affinity for, based on their Witcher video games and the production company. Um, little game called Cyberpunk. You heard of it, Dave? Cyberpunk 2077. You may. Have I heard. Uh, I heard many things. <laughs> well um so famously uh was released in 2020 uh and it was a dumpster fire to say the least um numerous updates bug fixes all of this um it was delisted from the playstation store it was a hot bubbly sick mess it did rebound after the big 2.0 update, however, and sold well. So uh it also followed up with a popular um Netflix anime uh that I was not aware of in, until I did research into this story. Um so it kind of gave a boost. Uh and then anytime you attach Keanu Reeves to an IP, you're bound to get popularity in that. Um and now they have released um a single expansion for Cyberpunk 2077. And according to Kotaku and reports, um CD Project Red spent over $80 million on this one expansion. So it's just fascinating to me um that something that was so maligned at release, um, they have gone doubled down on, on something that was was so widely criticized. Um, Now I did play cyberpunk 2077 and enjoyed it. Um, I wish it had a larger scope. I wish, I wish there was much more time uh, like that. I could be invested in it. I might be looking at phantom Liberty uh, in purchasing it. Um, But then I also saw on IGN that they are announcing a live action cyberpunk 27, 2077 project. Um, now, you and I have had this discussion at length of do we need a live action everything? <laughs> um, no. It's 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 interesting, you know, and I'm I'm a big fan of CD Project Red, Love the Witcher to the Moon and Back. Um, it's interesting that as chaotic as a release as um, you know, Cyberpunk was, that they are now doubling and tripling down on this, spending so much money on First, this expansion and now, you know, very early stages. Um, but some 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 cool names attached to this, cool uh acclamations, uh, the product production uh, they're producing it with Anonymous Content, which is the production company that did True Detective, Mr. Robot, uh award-winning films like The Revenant and Spotlight. And and so like there's there's some cool names attached to this, creatively speaking. Um, but I'm 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 just Honestly, shocked. I don't know if I'm, like, intrigued by this very much, Um, but it's just wild to kind of see how the tables have turned here.
1: Oh, I think everybody loves a comeback story, and CD Projekt Red has been, you know, making good products for a while, and so seeing them flounder strongly as they did with, uh, with Cyberpunk 2077 was kind of disappointing. Um, I think there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. I read, you know, a handful of stories about it that were, you know, more about the corporate arm of, of the company trying to push things out too fast, and it wasn't really, they weren't really done cooking, basically. Um, and now that they've had some more time, I'm not surprised that they were able to ride the ship and, and improve the game tremendously. Um, it's interesting too because Cyberpunk had such a poor reception when it was first released, and now flipside. Uh, I've seen several um, of these, you know, how can I put this nicely? Let's say anti-Starfield anti, um, anti Starfield bros online, specifically pointing to Cyberpunk 2077 as this is why Starfield sucks because Cyberpunk 2077 looks so much better. And I'm like, dude, just a few years ago, everybody was dunking on Cyberpunk 2077. Can you simmer down a little bit? Um so you know, I'm glad that they're making a comeback the way they are. I think it's just um the expansion of of everything into franchising and live action adaptations and all that. I'm losing interest in that very, very quickly. Um, I'm okay with a video game sometimes just being a video game, you know, and a movie just sometimes being a movie. Um and an animated feature, very importantly, just kind of being an animated feature, right? Not every not every cartoon needs a live action quote unquote remake. Um and live action in quotation marks. Sometimes if you look at the quote unquote live action remake of the Lion King that Disney put out, for example, it's just basically, you know, CG finished. It's still, you know, animated just at higher resolution. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. I think it is fine for a media, for a piece of media to be specific to a specific medium, if that makes sense, Um, without it getting adapted and, and transformed over and over again. But I, you know, i understand where they're coming from because they're just maximizing profits which is what they're supposed to do blah 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 yada 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 um but i I prefer when something kind of stands on its own two feet i have specifically not touched cyberpunk 2077 because i wanted them to have a couple years to iron out their problems and it's starting to sound like they about have so it might be time for me to actually give the game a shot now
0: yeah it, it was it was a fun play um I had a good time playing it once they fixed all that stuff. I did. I also waited until that second big update, and uh, you know me—that big digital discount in the shop. But um, as someone who is the lead evangelist for Starfield, Dave, you better hold me back. Um, I have completed uh, the main. I've, I've completed the game, the new game plus. I'm almost finished with it all over again. Like it's just like on endless repeat. Like it's one of those games for me that like you go to the one of those games where you're constantly thinking about it. Like I go to the grocery store and I'm like, Hmm, I need to stock up on this. How much health is this <laughs> snack going to restore? If I eat this pack of Oreos, how much health am I going to regain? It, it's just, and, in a lot of, a lot of the stuff that you reference, it just seems like sour grapes. Um, I don't want to say it's Sony fans, but I'm going to say it's Sony fans um <laughs> but yeah starfield is a masterpiece absolute masterpiece and you can miss me with that
1: yeah i'm looking forward to trying it um i've read that the recent update on the steam deck is making huge strides and and you know making it you know, making able to play it on a steam deck which i think is incredible they're doing a lot of uh a lot of tweaking on the steam deck behind the scenes lately there's a big 3.5 update that apparently uh, is starting to make things playable on the deck that weren't before. So I'm I'm thinking, you know, uh, I wait a little longer, they get this thing tweaked, I lower the settings a little bit, and I can actually enjoy this on the Steam Deck, which would be heavenly for me, because I love playing on that device. So I'm ready for it, man.
0: That sounds perfect, man. I'm telling you. And I'm playing it on the Series S, which... As fans of our show know, I'm not a big spec bro or anything like that, but it's one of the most gorgeous gaming experiences I've ever had. So much so that y'all know how I feel about Assassin's Creed. I bought Assassin's Creed Mirage and I cannot bring myself to start it. I I pre-ordered it and everything. I have not even hit start yet because I just keep playing Starfield. All right, that wraps up Nerd News. When we come back from our first break, our ByWord Big Talk has us revisiting Episode 2. Stick around. Welcome back to this week's main course, the Entree segment. We call it our ByWord. And keeping with that weird, strange analogy, because I'm just hungry, uh, we're looking at leftovers. I don't know how well we can have leftovers three years later, but here we go. We are looking There's back. There's
1: some mold on these leftovers, man. <laughs> uh,
0: we're looking back on how to save the comic book industry. We're going to look at the three suggestions or strategies that we had then. Do they need to be updated? Do they need to be tweaked? What do we need to do? So we've got a then and now for each of our, uh, of our strategies, Dave, what's uh first up for you.
1: When we first recorded that episode and we're talking about saving the comic book industry, you know, we were at the height sort of, of, uh, of COVID pandemic malaise and shopping was down and, you know, numbers were down across the board for pretty much anything, but the comic book industry was taking a pretty heavy hit as well at the time. And so, that certainly played a factor in the downturn. But um, although the industry has recovered somewhat from that downturn, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the breadth of history of the comic book industry, uh, the American comic book market used to be much, much healthier, um, selling significantly more issues uh, than, than they do today. And I think, I think nobody really denies that. I think most books in like the top uh, 11 to 25 or so sell anywhere between 40 and 50,000, maybe comic copies. And when you think that there used to be comic books that sold like a cool million copies, that is obviously, um, you know, not, not the same industry that it used to be. And as big comic book fans, it shouldn't be surprising that you and I in particular have a vested interest in the industry flourishing and doing well and comic books, uh, you know, proliferating and everybody loving this medium because it is an awesome medium. Um, so, You know, in that, uh, you know, when we first recorded this episode and we talked about how to improve comic book prospects, one of my ideas was to downgrade, to simplify the art, to simplify, um, you know, the kind of paper use to something more newsprinty and cheaper, and thereby driving prices down and making uh, comic books, you know, a disposable hobby again rather than a collector's market. And I think there's a certain amount of truth to that, uh, that, you know, the comic book market has become more collectors oriented and less about disposable income. um, And just like, you know, reading a comic book and then leaving it on the subway or something. And the next person picks it up and reads it, you know, Um, people kind of gave up on their comic books and left them laying around or gave them away frequently in the past because they were a a cheap uh, newspaper. Like a newspaper. Exactly. Um, I don't think that's ever coming back though. I think, uh, that, that idea was, was naive, especially since newsprint has changed too, you know, with the newspaper industry also going through its pains and there being less and less, you know, daily in uh, newspapers around the country. Now, um, newsprint has also gone up in price a lot and, you know, changing, um, the industry back to being able to be printed on newsprint would mean that colorists would have to do their job completely differently because the way color reproduces on newsprint is different. And I I just don't think that this is ever coming back. So, so then the question becomes what is a viable alternative if this downgrade idea is not going to work? And so to me, I think there are certain lessons that the American comic book industry
0: should embrace from the Japanese manga market. Now... Hold, (laughs) pause. There are a whole lot of ideas that Americans need to adopt from Japanese culture, just broadly speaking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Besides food,
1: I don't know why the only thing that American (laughs) culture seems to be interested in, uh, you know, quote-unquote amalgamating from other cultures is the food. Like, dude, uh, there are many cultures that have great ideas. Uh, Go to Europe sometime and ask people about healthcare, for example. Um, Anyway. That is neither here nor there. Um, so as far as the, uh, the the manga situation, you know, a lot of people that are, you know, um, how can I put this nicely? Let, let's call them manga bros, right? That go on social media and proclaim the supremacy of all things uh, Japanese comic books and denigrate the American comic book market constantly. They're really focused on content, right? I'm not really interested in that here. I'm much more interested in... Um, the way uh, the publishing side works. One of the things that I think is really um, awesome in the manga market is uh, number one size. I think it's very cool that they have this sort of um, trade paperback book size to them. They're very um, you know easy to carry around, much easier than a floppy comic book you know easy to fit in a backpack or something much easier sometimes and more importantly, they are thicker. I think, the, I think the real ratio and the thing that I was trying to get to uh, when it came to the downgrade idea is bang for buck right i think that comic books are not perceived by the general non-comic reading public as a actual value if you can go to walmart and go to the to a bin and get a blu-ray for 5 bucks and be entertained for 2 hours or you can spend 5 bucks on night terrors batman number 2 of 2 for 4.99 and be entertained for a grand total of 10 minutes the bang for the buck is not there right and so although I love floppies and I love the serialized storytelling to a certain extent, I think that one of the things that, that we need to start doing is just making, you know, comic book phone books, you know, these really big collections. You go out, you get one like, you know, Shonen Jump, for example, you know, Sucker has all these different stories going on right and is it collected in a big fat magazine and then you can sit down you can read those and then later on those stories sort of get collected in in these you know trade paperbacks that are you know really the size of a regular novel paperback novel and I think that that's actually a really cool business model um, because you kind of still have the serialized nature but you're like collecting them. imagine for example you have, from DC Comics, um, a Superman magazine, right? That comes out once a month. It's big, it's fat, and it has Superman in it, and action comics in it, and Superboy and Supergirl, and and any Superman-related stories. And you have like, you know, ten different series, and you have like two hundred-page whopper that you can get. Now, obviously, that costs more, sure. But you get such a bang for your buck at that point that you're much more interested, I think, in, in getting something like that. And if you only want to you know, follow one specific series, then you follow the collections, right? But I mean, I would be thrilled with something like that. I also think it would be fair to say that we ought to occasionally embrace black and white a little more. Um, I, th- I think that, you know, that is one of the big keys for what makes manga so accessible, right? You're basically... You know, printing in, in in a format that is reminiscent of a of a prose paperback, right? Um, and because you in black and white, it's very very affordable. These individual volumes, if you go to a bookstore, you know that they, they fill shelves and shelves um, because they're very popular and they're really affordable in the grand scheme of things. Uh, especially compared to American comic books, so I'm I think you know embracing some of those lessons, mix at the very least, mixing some of that into what what the comic book market is already doing uh, would be a really really smart idea to uh, to captivate maybe a, a new audience that is not considering American comic books right now.
0: It's so funny that you say that because I just turned around, Dave, to the bookshelf right behind me, and I got the Essential Avengers Volume One the uh, avengers one through 24 which 24 comic book issues in black and white you remember these essential marvel collections
1: dude uh, i had i had a whole shelf full of essential collections i loved them it was such a great way in a, in a dirt cheap way they were like what 15 18 20 bucks at the most and just like so many comic books in there, I was able to read. I think I had like nine volumes of Amazing Spider-Man in the Essential Collections. Most of my early Spider-Man reading was via those Essentials. That's how I know most of my Spider-Man history.
0: Yeah. So the co- the the cover price listed here is sixteen ninety nine. This was, of course, probably printed. I would guess twenty years ago, at least. Um but I got it at a used bookstore here locally for $8 and 50 cents for $8 and 50 cents. I have 24 comic book issues. Come on. It's not, it's not even comparable and it's black and white. So it brings me back to those days where I would steal my grandma's uh, comics and sports sections of the newspaper and just read Garfield um, and and stuff like that. So yeah, this is, this is definitely the way to go. And now, uh, now you're reminding me that I need to go, stop by said bookstore again because it's been far too long
1: it's also funny that you mentioned those because i remember those essential books very well and one of the things that they did with those essential books is drum roll please they downgraded the paper it was a lesser paper quality more reminiscent of the paper that you find in a in a paperback novel right so they they did exactly that they they you know were able to save a lot of money in the printing by you know abandoning the paper quality and and doing something that's you know, constantly being used anyways, the papers popping up in every novel you see, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I love the essential line, uh, with all my heart. I thought it was an, a great way to, to reprint some of their earliest, uh, you know, comic books.
0: Now, one of the, one of the things, one of the things, uh, listening back, it was really interesting. I, I listened back to episode two, uh, to prep for this episode, uh, And boy, have we come a long way, Dave. There was a lot of ums and uhs and well actually and you know, and I also sounded like I was being held captive in a tin can. So we've come a long way. But one of the things I remember saying back then about digital versus physical is, you know, having children and being able to keep things nice with kids. And this essential book, I'm not I'm not heartbroken because I spent eight fifty on it probably six years ago. Uh, so the binding is falling apart. So it's not it's not in great condition, but I can still read it. So it's just a, a funny kind of uh, callback to that episode.
1: <laughs> All right, man. So uh, what uh, is something that has changed about your attitude on how to improve the comic book industry since uh, back from episode two?
0: I think something that rang true from all of our strategies last episode, and I think is still going to ring true. Probably the thing that is going to be ever present when you connect both of these episodes um, is accessibility. Um, you know, back then I was talking about it, it should be at the grocery store. It should be where you found your first comic. Um, it should be in the checkout lane at Walmart or Target or insert department store. and. I think they've done a decent enough job of updating that, but for the most part, they are still shoved over there in the the trading card aisle. Um, that one forgotten one in between the different checkouts. <laughs> um, I will say that they have kind of, I was happy to see one of the things that I said. Put it in the book section. Put it in the book section. Well, now I go back to the book sections at Walmart or Target, and I see trade paperbacks of like the original Ms. Marvel run that we did by G. Willow Wilson and company. So that's encouraging to see. Uh, I saw Infinity Gauntlet back there, Um, and and I was happy to see that there were only like one or two copies left. So they seem to be they must have been selling well. So that was encouraging. Um, But the thing that I want to update on this. Is something that I saw yesterday when I went to Five Below. Uh, The kids dragged me out of the house. They wanted to go the last day of fall break. They were like, hey, we want to go somewhere. We want to get out of the house. So I said, all right. And I was happy to see comics there. There was um, a Jason Aaron Thor uh, trade paperback. It was hardcover for five bucks. That was great. Love that. I think I already had it, so I did not purchase it. Um, However, the thing that I have kind of soured on is these random grab bags of comics. They'll just have, like the one I saw yesterday was from DC. It was like Wonder Woman 764 or something like that. How is that new reader friendly? How is that going to hook someone? Just like random stray issues of comics that have no connectivity, no entry point. Like, let's just not do that. Now give me four number ones. That's a different story. But these just random numbered things those are not going to hook people and they're certainly not going to hook kids more on that later
1: yeah i hate those grab bags man um i know that uh, you know at fa- when i even when i was younger and those first started becoming a thing um i remember family members picking up these random grab bags for me and i always was like yeah thank you and then i opened them up and i was like well what am i supposed to do with this you know there's there's gen 13 number 14 and i'm like well what about one through 13 i have no idea what the story is even about um I think something like a random grab bag would work a lot better if you know some of the comic book industry would still be interested in telling done in one stories, but but they don't really do that anymore. You know, everything or, is, is what, deep what is and what is
0: the common what is the common thing? We're writing for the trade,
1: writing for the trade, yeah. Which is also interesting because uh, that has changed dramatically too. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the last few years, they went from six issue trades to five issue trades to four issue trades. So storylines are are becoming shorter again, but only because they're including less in a trade while still, you know, charging the same amount. I'm, I remember I was shocked when I picked up a trade paperback and the sort of the traditional thing I'd gotten used to was six issues per trade and suddenly it was only four. And I'm like, well, maybe I should have bought these in individual issues because this is not saving me any money, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, the writing for the trade makes it impossible to, you know, have any kind of joy out of these random grab bags. What it is, is this is, you know, leftover print run that they couldn't sell off and they're just randomly putting it in bags. And it's an afterthought. I don't think this is even meant to hook anybody. um, And I don't think there's, there's really any joy in that. Absolutely. I agree with that. Random grab bags are not it. It's not a good way of, of putting stuff out there. I will say, one thing that I have appreciated is that in recent years, it seems like rather than destroying Overstock, DC and Marvel in particular have just been selling it to that bargain outlet, Ollie's. <laughs> and so when you walk into an Ollie's <laughs> these days, they have just a metric crap ton of like these really awesome trade paperbacks all over the place that are like at a steep discount because they're just leftovers from a print run that you know and it's would not, be destroyed otherwise. Now, that
0: one, that one I enjoy because... For $10, I'm not getting four comics. I'm getting like 20.
1: That's correct. Yeah. So that is much, much smarter, I think, you know, there you are taking a a problem, which is that you didn't sell your entire print run, and you're telling, you're turning it into an advantage by putting it somewhere where comic books are generally not always sought after, you know, Uh, in this, you know, bargain outlet. And you know, at that reduced price, people will pick them up that may not normally, and and not, that is a smart move. But I agree, the the random grab bags are just ugh, I hate those things.
0: Now, you want to talk about random? i bought one of those, one or two of those from all these, and like I have them in my classroom on the bookshelf, and they'll be like, "What the heck is this?" If kids walk by, I'm like, dude, I don't know, it was a random grab bag. In my defense, so they'll have something like idw tmnt but then they'll also have like rom the space knight or like some um valiant comics from back in the day like it is all ages of comics um in in so many different ways the one thing that the one positive thing that i have seen you and i love this uh dc i've seen this with specifically but i've also seen it with some marvel legends um they're including number one issues with action figures. Like that's, duh. Yes. Genius. More of that.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah. That, so should, like be, that Superman, should be standard operating procedure.
0: Superman Rebirth, number one, is the one that I've seen the most of in like Walgreens, even uh, Walmart, uh, Target, stuff like that. But also some like Marvel Legends figures I have seen. So that is deeply encouraging and more of that.
1: You know, I've I've appreciated – and I know this is adjacent, but I think it needs to be said. I've really appreciated how James Gunn, uh, since he has taken uh, yes, over yes, DC yes, yes, movie yes, division, yes, yes. how he's constantly talking about, um, you know, the comic books that are, in, that are behind and inspiring the, the new upcoming screen adaptations. I think that is the right attitude too. And I think once we get merch, you know, from those movies, like, you know, we get Superman – you know, what is the movie going to be called? Superman legacy. Legacy. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're putting out Superman legacy action figures, you better believe there should be a comic book bundled with each one of those figures. I think that is the exact smart thing to do. You get a lowest lane action figure and you get a reprint of lowest lane. Number one, you know, like lean into that. Absolutely. Plus, the series was good
0: with facsimile ones where they're, they're trying to give those away. Anyway, those are the facsimile editions should be cheaper. Um, but also, like, that's something I love on DC Universe Infinite, which is a big development. There is a big development, Dave, since um, we recorded that episode oh so long ago. I don't believe DC Universe Infinite has existed. And yeah, we'll talk,
1: had, about like, di- we'll, we'll talk more about digital in a little bit.
0: <laughs> but uh, one thing, you know, before, before, not to put the cart before the horse, is something that I love that both DC and Marvel do a good job of. comicsology as well is... When you get into those apps, and they have, like you said with James Gunn, they have all those in a collection on the app. Marvel Comics, Loki Season 2 is coming out right now. They have the reading guide for Loki and things that you're seeing. So that's something that they're doing a much better job of, comiXology as well.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that digital space in particular is so so important to the future of the comic book industry. Like I said, we'll talk more about that. I have a lot to say on that, but you're absolutely right. They're doing a much better job trying to tie in with with some of the adaptations and stuff. I really like that, and I think you're going to have more about that here pretty soon too. Listen, we're um, we're
0: co- we're cooking, and we've only gotten through our first one. So let's let's pick up the pace here, old friend. All right, uh, your your second uh, point revisited and new.
1: Yeah, so then I uh, made a big point out of uh, accessibility to old stories, right? So the idea that you should be able to sit down and read all of Amazing Spider-Man if you want to, because you really like the character. But things were just not very accessible at this point, right? the uh, essential line that we just talked about is, was probably the most affordable way to read some of those older issues. But even while I was buying the Amazing Spider-Man in these essential volumes, I noticed very quickly that they had a print run; they would go, that would sell out. They would have another print run, and then they just wouldn't reprint them anymore. So when I would go to stores, I would notice that the prices were starting to become inflated because there was no way to get more, you know. And so keeping, um you know, the, these old issues in front of people because they, they might be, you know, quote unquote old, but that doesn't mean they're bad, right? It's like watching an old black and white movie. Come at me. You know, I love my old black and white movies. Um, is, you know, that that was to me was key. You know, you have this huge back catalog. Why are you not making it available? Well, I think some of that issue has been alleviated thanks to digital. And again, I I'll, I want to spend a lot of time talking about digital at the end. So I think my... My thing now, rather than, you know, worrying about reprinting these old series necessarily is accessibility, not accessibility as so far as in, in stores, but accessibility of the actual content. I think, I think we're really struggling there, man. Uh, the American comic book industry, particularly the big two are really, really bad. Um, when it comes to making a story accessible and new reader friendly, um, And we're constantly getting relaunches, blah, blah, blah. And that's all fine and dandy. I understand why they do that. New number ones get a bump. It's a natural jumping on point, whatever. But you're still building on the back of the series that came before that and the series that came before that and the series that came before that. And so it is almost impossible at any given time to pick up a random comic book, read it, and get something out of it without having a vast knowledge of history behind you. You just experienced this for our last episode when you were reading The Flash number 1, and suddenly you have Impulse and Max Mercury in your face in the first page, right? And you have no context for these characters. And and so I, I think that is a significant problem. And I think there needs to be a greater emphasis on shorter stories done in ones, um uh recap pages. I think it's very, very important to have recap pages. And I'm glad that in some series those have been making a comeback, but for many they had just kind of disappeared. Having a recap on the front page of the story so far to help people get a sense for what's going on, super important. I remember in the Star Wars um expanded universe for a little while, they even had a page in the front of like a breakdown of the characters involved. So you had an understanding for who all the people were that were involved. I think that's really smart too. You know, you, you can very easily when you're doing a, a group superhero story like, you know, Justice I, League. I, or love something,
0: when, I love when Marvel. I love when Marvel does that.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, you have just a page where you have like these are the characters, these are their powers, one or two sentences on each character. So when you jump into the story, it, it makes more sense. I think accessibility in that case is key. How do you make the content of your book accessible? They always say, I forget who says said this, but every comic book is somebody's first, right? So if you keep that in mind, how can you I make guess, sure- I think that's attributed
0: that, to Stan Lee, whether or not it's actually Stan Lee.
1: That's another story. Who knows?
0: <laughs>
1: that's another story, right? But if that's the case, then as an industry, you need to make sure that you're giving people something to come back for right? Every issue needs to be satisfying in some way. Look, I, I tell you what, this, this is something that I worked on for, for a while, and I've never quite gotten to yet. But I had a, I have a concept. It's in one of my drawers here somewhere for an ongoing comic book series. But one of the hooks of how I was wanting to structure it is I wanted to structure it like a television series. Now, not not streaming television because streaming television is a very, very different animal. I'm talking about network television. So the idea was that every issue is a standalone story, but contributes somewhat to a larger arc. And now basically the idea would be you have 10, you you go over one year, it's a monthly book, you have 10 standalone stories that are all leading up you know, with, with B B plots and stuff to a two-part finale, that's issue eleven and twelve, that's a season of the comic book, and then you start over again with a new arc. If that makes sense. And so that kind of format
0: Listen, um, if makes sense gonna, to me. If you're gonna steal from Mr. Monk, you better watch yourself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mr. Monk. Yeah. That so that, that that I think that's the best I've ever seen that done where you had this through line spoiler for a show that came out 20 years ago. But like the fact that you have like a case by case episodic thing, this very Sherlock Holmesian type thing, and then you have the constant through line of him trying to solve his wife's murder. That that's the best I've ever seen it done.
1: I will also, and I and I know you have paused your watch of this, but I will also say that another series that did this extremely well was Buffy know, the Vampire Slayer. I
0: know.
1: Their, their, their <laughs> system, I, agree. Their system I agree.
0: I agree. It's just I'm so overwhelmed. Starfield. I can't I can't do anything. Starfield has <laughs> I can't do anything else. <laughs>
1: So the the concept of having a different quote-unquote big bad every season, right? And you have your standalone stories, but you also have always a little bit contributed in each episode towards the resolution with the big bad of the season. And then you start over the following season with a new big bad. That thought was really smart too. So using an approach like that in comic books, for example, would assure that every every issue is a complete tale in some way, and and then there is a satisfaction. Now, that was a really cool story. I wonder if the next one is this cool, you know? And there is still a, an element of cliffhanger because it's part of an overall arc. But you have a greater focus on done-in-one stories. I, you know, if I look back at old comic books, you know, they used to have multiple stories per issue, and now it takes multiple issues per story. I think I think somewhere we might have gone a little bit wrong. If you want. If you want floppy comic books, if you want, to, yes, if you want 22 page comic books, then you need to tell a 22 page story, I think. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't have larger arcs and that doesn't mean you can't collect them in trades and all that. But I think there needs to be an, a certain amount of, you know, rising, t- uh, initial incident, rising tension resolution. And you know what issue. broke
0: us? You know what broke us? And there are elements uh, from this era that we both enjoyed. The Clone Saga broke us.
1: <laughs> the Clone Saga broke everybody. <laughs> yeah, broke our spirits. Um, but yeah, I think accessibility of content uh, to to end my rant is really key here.
0: This is going to be one of our jam-packed episodes, I feel, because <laughs> we're we're not even halfway through our points. But I I totally agree, and I it's far be, like like take this as a note, me. Uh, hearkening back to the olden days as the resident anti-nostalgia person. But um like, I think this is like, how, how many times did we get Peter Parker's origin story told us in like the old ASM stuff? Like we, we got that told so many different ways. It was almost like biblical where like you had different accounts of the story. And so like, wait, which one is the right one? Like we had like some of the lore changing with some of the retellings of the uncle Ben stuff Um, don't get
1: me started on how often i've seen bruce wayne's parents get shot
0: exactly but like at the same time that that gives you a consistent frame of reference and it's almost like a home base that kind of like repositions you like you can like kind of synthesize if you will and and move on towards this um i also think that older comics now of course there wasn't as much stories having been told, of course hindsight's 2020, 20, and they didn't have thirty plus years of of storytelling to have to pack into this. But even those like little asterisks where it's like see adventures of Spider-Man and Wolverine for the full tale. Like even those subtle hints towards the other stuff, like if you're interested in reading up on that, that's a very easy thing to go find and read. Um as far as this digital now but like um yeah i i swear like and and you can appreciate this as someone who is bilingual as well when i read a dc comic there's a certain level of it feels like a foreign language is being spoken like i can pick up i can pick up a new marvel series like i started reading moon knight recently nerd commendation coming. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I've just been so busy that I haven't got to read it. But, um, and while Moon Knight is a new character, new-ish character to me, I learned him through video games, Marvel Ultimate Alliance and stuff like that. There is at least like a commonality in that world that I understand because I've read Daredevil, because I've read Spider-Man. So me picking up a Moon Knight book is not, you know, resetting the wheel. So to speak. But me, like that flash book just left me. Like it felt like I had been attacked by a speedster when I was done. Like I just kind of sat back in my chair, just like, what just happened? And so I think there we we've gotta we've gotta go back to like synthesizing. And I've I've read Justice League's books that have done that, a great job of doing that, of kind of re- in, reintroducing these characters via an intro page um the avengers books did this great for a long time especially under hickman of like this person is this like a like a like a even like a one panel kind of reorientation and i think we're i think we're missing that i'm never i'm never going to be the person that jumps on the bandwagon of why do we have a new number one I, I'm, I'm in support of a new number one, especially if it's a new creative team it's a very clear delineation. This is a new direction we're taking I'm here for it especially I just think of it as a new volume like it's not I, I'm not a collector so you're not going to like legacy numbering you're I'm, I'm not interested in anything although of that. I do
1: although I do like that compromise for Marvel of having the, the I, I the do new as well. number for that volume and the legacy numbering on there I do yeah. like that as a compromise.
0: So that's it's it's a nice compromise, but I'm never going to be like, why do we have a new another another new number one? Um No, it makes
1: sense from an industry perspective, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So like because sometimes you get caught in the stodginess of that. And it's really hard to tell someone, oh, you should start reading Superman eight hundred and sixty two. Like, what? Like that's no, I'm really not gonna start with eight hundred and sixty two. I'm not gonna do that. I'm just not. I don't care if it's a new, like it took me forever to start Nightwing just on, I did not feel comfortable starting over with Tom Taylor's Nightwing. It was like issue 68 or 69, something like that. Like I didn't feel comfortable. And then I tried to read the Rebirth and for the first 20, 30 issues, I nerd commended it. I enjoyed it. And then it got really stupid. (laughs) And I was just like, okay, maybe I should just jump forward to Taylor's run. But yeah, so it's, it's... It's a difficult needle to thread.
1: And uh, you can quote me on this uh, internet. I'm just going to say it Uh, continuity sucks. I, I think having 60, 70, 80 years of continuity is incredibly detrimental to the comic book industry, it ties too many creators' hands. It makes it difficult to to get people invested because, oh, I have to le- I have to learn, you know, 60 years of minutiae to understand this character. If continuity gets in the way, it is it is not a positive. So continuity I, sucks. The quote, I, the quotable Dave.
0: I tend to agree, but with a caveat, like I don't I don't mind having it as like this apocryphal thing, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it happened, but we're not gonna, we don't need to harp on it. We don't need to focus on it. The thing that drives me nuts and Nick Spencer, who I defended for the longest time. You remember when I was a Nick Spencer defender? (laughs) I still, I still ride, I still ride for his Captain America and Secret Empire. That was an enjoyable storyline that was still relevant. I think I said that recently in an episode, so I'll say it again. I still go up for his Captain America. However, and, and Zeb, who I still defend, will always defend, and, you know, you and I have had our spats, our civil wars on that. I don't need you to flex. And Dan Slott does this. Oh my god, I don't need you to flex how much of a Spider-Man historian you are. I don't need every little Easter egg. I really don't. I don't need the. I just big need man. a good story, man. I I really don't. That's why this tombstone stuff. And I I haven't read comics for a month because Starfield, <laughs> but this tombstone stuff with Zeb is like, that's where it's at. Like I could, I could give a, you know what about some of the other stuff. Like, I don't care. Like it doesn't bother me. Cause I don't care. I, I don't care who Peter Parker is romantically entangled with in give, give a given year, like it, whatever. But like, I don't need the big man to come up again. I don't need these random, plot threads from the 80s to show up again. Like, I'm I'm good. Just tell a good story, bro.
1: I will, I will, you know what? There's, there's something that you and I can agree on when it comes to current Spider-Man. The Tombstone stuff has been the best stuff. Anything related to Tombstone has been probably the best stuff that was going on in that book.
0: So where I left off with the wedding and that fiasco, that was like, woof. So I am excited to get back into that. I know that it's taken a different direction and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna check it out. But, but yeah, Tombstone stuff is... Tombstone as a whole, like there's a spectacular Spider-Man. Here's a nerd commendation. I think I've already nerd commended spectacular Spider-Man, but there's a spectacular Spider-Man run. I don't know if they've put it on digital yet, which is a crime. because spectacular Spider-Man for large swaths is better than amazing Spider-Man. And I've said that many, many times. There's a run where you get the history between Robbie Robertson and Tombstone. like That's some of the best Spider-Man comics you will ever read. Is the Robbie Robertson, and like it kind of informs this whole relationship going forward. But that's that's a random rant for another day.
1: All right, let's continue a uh, random rant <laughs> with your second point.
0: So way back when I said promotion from screen adaptations, um, our local comic shop did a good job when um, Age of Ultron came out. They were handing out uh, Secret Wars number one by Hickman um, with that sticker that I referenced in the previous episode of come to our shop if you want more of this. So like I thought that was a brilliant cross promotion. I was just like, why are more things, more people, more companies, more people not doing this? Why is Marvel Studios not doing this from their end? Like this is just one entrepreneur, local entrepreneur trying to drum up sales and being super smart about it. Like why? Why is the big corporation whose profits are the bottom line? Why are they not interested in this? Um, and so, like my point from then was promotion from screen adaptations. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a step further in here because we've all um, seen how poorly the actual people who created the stories that are being screen adapted. We've seen how Chris Claremont has been uh, treated. We've seen... uh, Help me, Dave. The guy who created Winter Soldier, Ed... Ed, what's his name? Ed Brubaker. Brubaker. We saw how Ed Brubaker was shafted with the MCU and all of that. And as a Marvel fanboy, when you love something, you criticize it. Take care of your creators. When their baby is making you a billion dollars on the screen, take care of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably carving a rollout for me is like the labor guy, but I don't care. Like I'm, I'm ready for if need be for comic book artists and whether freelance, this might be more difficult. If, if freelance creators, comic book artists, comic book uh, writers need to go on strike from the big two, from whoever, then so be it. But you need to work that into your contract to take care of your creators Because if you take care of those creators, that's going to draw more people to the occupation because they're going to be well compensated. That just breeds innovation and new storytelling. And then that's going to make everything in some more, much more accessible. You're going to have more good content to push out, to promote. Like if you take care of your workers, good stuff follows. Let me tell you,
1: you know, I I can't echo this one enough. I think uh, happy creators are willing to create more for you. And if their creations are already making you a billion dollars, imagine what their next creation could do for you, right? Um, I, I don't quite understand how the people who are making all of this stuff possible, you know, by writing the comics that, you know, the next billion dollar movie is based on how they are not taken care of. It is incredible to me how many comic book creators end up on social media with a post. That's like, Hey, I'm having health issues, please, you know, uh, help Go me raise me. money for my, a ho- ho- for, me. Yes. for my hospital bills. Like that, that is, that is so far out of the realm of, of what is acceptable at this point. Like, I understand contracts are contracts, and the industry was built on contracts that basically say this is work for hire. You don't get more, you know. But if you're if you just made a billion dollar movie, and a, if you just made exactly. a billion dollar movie, exactly. and it, yeah, that that there is absolutely it's absolutely unacceptable that you don't take care of these creators in some way. There should be some kind of clause. like, hey, if you get a, if this gets adapted, and makes a ton of money, you get this and this percentage of that. Like that's just just good. Get
0: that written in there in writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. it it should be. It absolutely should be.
0: All right, Dave. Your third and final then and now.
1: So I said that uh, they need to make digital a priority. Uh, those years ago in our second episode, and let me tell you, I feel like they kind of did. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that DC Universe Infinite and and Marvel Unlimited both have made pretty big inroads. I think I saw on one of the websites we looked at before the episode that it's like they uh, that uh, the digital part of the industry was making like 170 million. A year or something like that which is not bad at all (laughs) it's a good start and so i'm glad that they have prioritized digital because a lot of the stuff that i said about accessibility back then about you know being able to access old series and stuff has become significantly easier thanks to digital and driving the costs down has also become a thing thanks to digital if you can spend a you know 120 a year and you have access to tens of thousands of comic books, uh, the ratio of what you're paying per book to read is actually a lot less than five, six bucks in a comic book store, right? So I think digital has taken care of a lot of those kinds of things that I was already talking about uh, back then. Now, I think it is time to start innovating in that space. I think it's time to start trying new things, new formats in order to make it as, as comfortable as possible and as easy as possible for people who are not traditional comic book readers to get involved in these platforms. Um, I think one of the really uh, interesting experiments that I've seen is what Marvel Unlimited did with their Infinity Comics, right? I was just the idea about to that say, you, took the words from that, my mom. yeah, that you just keep scrolling, right? Like it, comic books specifically made for the digital landscape,
0: and Genius. the artists and the artists mm. that have fully embraced that medium are cooking. It
1: cooking, you're not kidding. Cooking really, really cool stuff in, in Marvel's Infinity Line, right? So, that is the correct attitude to have. Like, now that you're moving on digital, you know, and now that you're putting your back issues on there, that's all uh, that's all grand. But now, how can you enhance the experience? How can you capture uh, a generation that is a digital native? How can you get the TikTok crowd? Like that is really the question here, you know? If you can capture that crowd, the people who are constantly online, you know, because they're on social media or they're watching YouTube videos or whatever, if you can capture that crowd, then you're gonna grow the industry like nobody's business. But for that, you have to start thinking, how do I do that? Because it's not just take what we do in print and put it on there digitally. That That is zero point. That is the bare minimum. Right now you have to start playing around with digital. Now you have to innovate. Now what does that look like? I don't know. I'm not the I'm not a great technology innovator. I use technology, but I'm not exactly creating it over here. But there are probably things that you can try to do: uh, short, bite-sized comics. I don't know that you can read in five minutes. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe something like that. Since we have a a, a generation that is very much in the quick fix situation, right? Um, but how do you capture that audience? That's the key, I think, to, to growing the comic book industry again. Now that we're digital, how can we make digital work? I'm, I don't have I don't have any good answers here. Just that it is something that much smarter people uh, and much more knowledgeable people than me need to sit down and really think about. Um, Marvel's Infinite Line is the is a first step. You know, formatted so it's very easily read on a screen, on your phone, on a tablet. Great, fantastic. No page turns, just keep scrolling. That's a good first step. But what else can you do to capture those digital natives? And and I think really, I, I sincerely believe that digital is the future of comic books. I think everything is going digital. As much as I, as an you know, as I hate to say that, as an old foggy, I like my physical comics. You know, I like my physical media. I, I have. I don't even want to talk about how many physical game discs I have still from Xbox, Xbox 360 and Xbox One. It's one of the reasons I can't go get a Series S because I'd lose like 300 games or something that I can't play because it doesn't have a darn disc drive. Like I love physical media, but I also have to acknowledge, for example, on my Steam Deck, if I want to play something on my Steam Deck, it's going to be digital, you know? Uh, if you watch something on, uh, you know that if you want to watch something, uh, movie or television series-wise, more often than not, you're on a streaming service now. It's all digital, you know. So I think co- comics is going to go a similar way. I don't think that print is going anywhere, but I do think that eventually we're going to reach a tipping point, and things are going to shift more and more to to the digital space. And whatever company comes up with an innovative way of delivering. Comic book content in the digital space is going to be, I don't know, the, 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 the Xbox of comics, like with their Game Pass. Like they were pretty much the first people on the block to really make that work. And they're still ahead of the curve, even though Sony is trying to play catch up with their own subscription services, right? So I'm waiting, DC, Marvel, whomever, to innovate in that digital space a little bit and to come up with a different way to do comics in the digital space. And I think once they figure that out, boom. It's going to make a huge impact on the industry.
0: As as much as this element of social media makes you and I cringe, especially with your journalism background, with my journalism enthusiasm, we'll go with. I've always supported journalism. I was a writer back in middle school myself. Um, I've written freelance articles. Embrace the clickbait. Embrace the clickbait nature of social media, of TikTok, of Twix, of Facebook even, and just launch into that from Marvel's perspective on their pages, on DC's pages, on IDW's pages. Be like, remember that time Superman died? Read about it here. Or remember that time... Scott Summers abandoned his wife and newborn child because his old flame was reborn. Read more about that drama here. Like, come embrace the mess. And like, just this, so many people with the advent of social media, and I said this before earlier, Like, there is no attention span. Whether it is diagnosed as ADHD or not, zero attention span, negative five attention span. So embrace that and try and capitalize on that. Have a link to the actual comics. Oh, you want to read the first part of that? Boom, here. Just don't make it a bunch of hoops and bounce Like Marvel does a great thing with if you buy a physical copy, you get a code for a digital one. It's still a whole nother... Streamline that. Streamline that process. Here's a code that you have to go to this website to enter it. Then you have to download this app to actually read it. Nope. Streamline it. Create a URL, uh, a link that that takes you to that issue and you read it then and now because we have streamlined so much of our media. Like we got to make it quick. Like we don't have time for that.
1: Yep. I love that. All right, Chris, that brings us to your last change of mind that you've had since uh, our second episode.
0: Well, it's funny because both of our final points were just doubling down on the previous one or pivoting or tinkering with the previous one. So back then I said the youth movement with rewards and incentives. I probably, I didn't get to that part in re-listening. I probably talked about like the book it uh, scenario where I would be at Pizza Hut every other week because I had read so many books and I was getting free pizza I am now updating that, Dave. We've talked about this as educators. Um, there's been a lot of teacher talk uh, on on social media and kind of a revelation that yes, the pandemic set us back, but there's a whole bunch of deep seated issues. And one of the things is not only kids do str- not only are kids struggling to read, they have zero desire to read they are, we have to drag them to the library to pick out an independent reading book once a week. Drag them, our ELA teachers. Um, we have to bribe them with incentives to read and do anything. Um, so we, we have to kind of evangelize for reading. And Dave, you remember back in the day, I don't know if they had this in Germany, but do you remember the Got Milk ads?
1: Yeah, they were all over the place. Even in Germany, I, I remember seeing some milk mustache ads. I think that was uh, mostly an American thing, but for some reason, I, I remember seeing some in my youth. So I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure if it was import comics that I was looking at at the time or what, but I remember seeing
0: them. Okay, so let me tell you, those got milk ads—they got me hook, line, and sinker. That was the biggest thing for me growing up as a kid in the 90s. If you put my favorite athletes on one of those got milk ads in a magazine or in a newspaper or on a commercial, I was there because I emulated those people. Um, if you, I, like I, I got in trouble because like the whole gallon of milk would be gone because like, oh my God, Chris, what are you doing? That's your third glass of milk. They said I had to drink three glasses of milk. Okay. I've never broken a bone. And I always like use that as my calling card. they like, listen, I used to drink three glasses of milk a day as a kid. Like I, I, I we could not keep milk in the house because of that effectiveness. We've got to have some kind of evangelism for readings, uh, for for reading for these kids. And if it's Chris Evans doing a reading TikTok, or if it's Robert Downey Jr. doing, um, Jason Momoa doing like a TikTok for like this is what you should read. I'm reading this comic, and so should you. Or like I'm reading this. Like these kids do not want to read. They want to play video games. They want to watch YouTube videos they do not want to read. There's even an old Jim Gaffigan joke about like, you know what I enjoyed about the, about people who are always like, oh, the book is better than the movie. You know what I enjoyed about the movie? No reading. And that sentiment has crept into this next generation. They have no desire to read until we fix that problem. And if we tack that head on, that's how we save reading as a whole, not just comic books.
1: Preach it. Like I I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that, uh, reading in particular is is something even more so than the comic book industry that's in desperate need of saving and if you have more readers then you have more potential readers for the comic book industry so it is definitely something that uh, that works hand in hand uh yeah it is super regrettable how uh you know digital native somehow now has come to mean you know non reader um i find i find that so so sad and i'm hoping um, that, that somebody at some point is going to start advocating for, for reading to become more important again um, and, and to kind of push it a little bit. And, and, and like you said, have a campaign that says, hey, listen, kids, you know, reading is cute cool, or whatever you want to do. You know? like, we have to do something to inspire these kids to, to get reading again. And so I, I wholeheartedly agree. That is, that is point zero. Like We just have to make people readers again.
0: Now, one of the things that I enjoy that our our school library does, uh, especially when the book fair comes around, is these graphic novels of these popular characters, of Kamala Khan, of Miles Morales, of Diana. Even I have, and I I scoop them up when they're at the book for uh, book fair. I, I was crushed when I didn't get the new Miles one, but I have those in my classroom. Like if kids were wanting to read or 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 what have you, all right, heck, I read them. And something that you know, both companies um, have, have done really well. And I've nerd commended some of them is these young adult graphic novels as kind of like a bridge between two worlds. And so more of that.
1: Yeah, man, absolutely.
0: All right, that wraps up our ByWord big talk. Uh, what did we miss? What are ways that you would improve comic book sales, the industry as a whole? What did we miss? What are we tone deaf on? What Help us out. Hit us up on social media at nerdbyword across all those mm-hmm. platforms. Um, And when we come back, our second to last installment of Nerd Nightmare. All right, so the month of October, my free time, my nerd commendations have been hijacked by none other than my lovely co-host. So Dave, it's your turn. I'm going to turn this over to you.
1: My God, don't I love October? Because once again, it is time for Nerd Nightmare. And uh, this week, uh, I once again decided to do something a little out of the ordinary. Last week, we really captivated Chris with uh, The Cabin in the Woods, and I'm thought this is something in a similar vein, where it does something a little unexpected and different tonally. And I wondered if this might be a movie for him. So we're talking about the 2019 horror-slash-thriller movie, Ready or Not, uh, starring uh, Samar Weaving, Adam Brody, Andy McDowell, Mark O'Brien. The movie... Uh, Here is the official tagline. Uh, Grace couldn't be happier after she marries the man of her dreams at his family's luxurious estate. There's just one catch. She must now hide from midnight until dawn while her new in-laws hunt her down with guns, crossbows, and other weapons. As Grace desperately tries to survive the night, she soon finds a way to turn the tables on her not-so-lovable new relatives. Chris, I am going to freely admit uh, this was one of the best theater experiences that I have had in the last all 10 years or so. Um, I had a really, really good time with this movie when I saw it with a crowd, and I'm very interested to hear your take on this one.
0: Okay, so I'm going to try my best to keep our family-friendly rating that we have, but I don't think that um, your clicky pen or the bleep button is going to help here, so I'm going to just try and try and just be a good boy here. Um, my biggest overall thing is, and I texted this to you, but I'm going to try and clean up my colorful language. Uh, Alex is one of, mm, how can I say this? Oh, Alex is lame. He's the worst. He's terrible. <laughs> He's one of those like like oh, like faux sensitive bros that like oh i have feelings and this is you changed my life but then when it comes to like doing actual things like actions speak louder than words bro you should have just eloped with this girl you didn't even have to marry her okay okay if if, if marriage is the final thing if you truly really cared about her y'all could just go as as the as the preachers would say go live in sin Go live in sin rather than put this girl's life at stake. And how did that work out for you, Bubba?
1: Chris, you make it sound like so much fun when you say that. Go live in (laughs) sin. It sounds sounds like a blast.
0: (laughs) Which is is ironic because uh, your family sold their soul to the devil. (laughs) (laughs) The devil. The devil. Ha Satan. But yeah, like so like that was my biggest takeaway. I was just frustrated and like. Um, anytime no in all seriousness anytime Adam Brody shows up on my screen I'm a happy man I forgot how religiously I watched the OC back in high school and how no. his like his twitchy dorky dweeby energy just vibes with me and like how he's evolved that style over time where like he's he's kind of like the cool guy in this movie which is weird coming from him like he makes sense in Shazam and horribly criminally underused in those Shazam movies. Um, as much as I enjoyed the first one and uh, to a lesser degree, the second one, like he's the perfect encapsulation of the older version of that character. I, I'm the kid's name is escaping me, but that's neither here nor there, but Freddie, um, Freddie. Freddy, thank you. Um, but yeah, this was a really enjoyable one. Um, and just like a really interesting take on like that final girl trope. Some of the humor was a little bit on the nose for me. Like, like the final line is in-laws and I'm just like, okay. But other than that, like it was, it was a really enjoyable one. Um, the, the sister just taking out everybody except for the person was pretty funny as like this, coked out, this coked out degenerate loser. And then I, you know what? My, I take that back. I take back everything I said. My biggest overall take was this was a really interesting kind of social critique satire on the uber wealthy in America and like how they kind of sell their souls um, and to keep it in the family and, and like to keep up appearances to keep their status and even amidst controversy, like you have the, 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 the daughter with substance abuse issues they keep that in the family like the the parents are like just apologize for her like they just don't even hold her accountable um you have like the the prodigal son returning but yeah this was this was just a wild this was a wild film wild
1: yeah, I, fi- I found it super, uh, super enjoyable. I really liked the sense of humor of it. I didn't, I you know, I didn't expect it to be as funny as it ended up being when I watched it first. Um, and uh, Samara, Samara, however you pronounce her name, Weaving, is, is such a star in this movie. I think she just she just takes this role and just knocks it out of the park. She's so charismatic. Uh, I had to be reminded of her because she is like... Um, spoilers, uh, in the recent, most recent screen movie, she's like the first victim. So she dies in like the first five minutes of the movie, but even there, like five minutes in the movie, she completely commands the screen. And I'm like, why is this woman not in everything? Like she is so good in this movie. I just want to see more of her. Um, and I really, really enjoy, um, you know, the, the, this, this idea of, of survival in an, in an, um, unfamiliar environment and you're not sure who you can trust and all that I think that works really well here with a more humorous twist but there was a movie a while back maybe something for Nerd Nightmare next year uh, called You're Next I believe and that one worked in a very similar sort of way you know you have an outsider coming in with a family and there's this whole drama going on and then people start dying uh, it's a little more straight-laced and serious, but also a really, really strong movie. So this, like, trying to survive against impossible odds kind of thing, the tension that comes out of that, that's really, really enjoyable in these kinds of movies. And I think it worked to a T here.
0: It's funny you say that about Samara Weaving, and you and I had texted about this a little bit. She she kind of suffers from the success of Margot Robbie because she looks very similar. She's an Australian-born actress as well. Um but I, I did, and I was looking for a nerd, new, a nerd news story uh, this week, and one of the headlines from The Hollywood Reporter is that this new movie that she's a part of has been picked up called Azrael, and it's about, um, and this sounds like a great kind of premise for a horror movie. It's set in a world, and I'm reading directly here from a Hollywood reporter. Azrael is set in a world in which no one speaks And centers on a devout female-led community that hunts down a young woman, the self-titled character played by Weaving, who has escaped her imprisonment, recaptured by its ruthless leaders, Azrael, is to be sacrificed to pacify an ancient evil. Oh, this sounds familiar. (laughs) That resides deep within the surrounding wilderness, but she will stop at nothing to ensure her own freedom and survival. So this might be ready or not under another name and different kind of filter, if you will. But, you know, that sounds interesting all the same.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm ready for it. I just I just want to see her in something again because even like that that short taste of her acting in uh in, in the most recent screen movie and I was like, you know, why is she not in more stuff? She is so charismatic and she does, you know, horror movie roles in particular so well. Like uh, she should be all over the place at this point.
0: I think I think the the image of like her in some cool orange converse and like ripping up her wedding dress, like that whole thing, we should not lose that like this is her wedding night like she's trying to do the the standard like consummating the marriage thing and then the creepy Aunt Helene is just like (laughs) peeping out and that's a fascinating thing too of like how Helene switched it up because she was you know someone who had to live through that and then for her to be the bookend and like leading the charge on this she was like no y'all killed my husband no it's time to kill her um but like yeah there was so it was it was it was really wild but like that image of her in her well-worn converse and having to rip up her dress and stuff that was that was pretty cool
1: yeah yeah, I, I really, really like this. Not, not as earth shatteringly innovative as as the cabin in the woods, but no, nothing. I I think.
0: That's going to be a high watermark, and unfortunately, that movie did not perform as well for whatever reason. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes, but like that's 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 going to be the standard for me moving forward.
1: Well, I I am so glad I was able to introduce you to that one.
0: <laughs> All right, that wraps up uh, another episode of Nerd Byword. I've got one more nightmare to suffer through next week um, before we get back to nerd commendations. But if you like what you heard today, we thank you so much for supporting us and you can find us on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is, whether that's Apple Spotify or NerdbyWord.com.
1: And of course you can find us on social media because we would like to know what you think of what you heard. Find us on, uh, Twix, <laughs> Instagram, and, and pretty much wherever there is a social media platform. At least one of us is there. You can find us at nerdbyword or individually at thatnerddave and at thatnerdchris. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.